Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Tamara Steffens joins us today from Dallas. She is Managing Director at M12, Microsoft's venture arm focusing on Series A and beyond. Prior to M12, Tamara was an operator with over 20 years of experience in Silicon Valley. Her last startup, Accompli, was a mobile productivity app where she led sales and BD. Prior to that, she helped many startups like Software.com, Boingo, and Fusion One hit IPO or acquisition. Tamara, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Um, So, you know, I gave a a really brief overview of your background. Can you talk about your path to venture? Yeah. So, um, you mentioned Accompli. So, that was my last startup. um, And we were acquired by Microsoft in the end of 2014. I think we made it official in January of 2015. Um, And I, you know, they asked me to help them with mobile and BD and uh, help the productivity group when I got here. And I loved it. I surprisingly thought um, I would not like it and I would leave and go do another startup after doing six. It, it becomes addictive, but I didn't. And it was really fun being inside um, Microsoft and having so many resources. So when, when we got acquired, then I ran BD um, for kind of the productivity group, think of it as the Office 365 and a lot of the, the products that are under that umbrella. And then, um, you know, they said, hey, we, we think we need an operator on the M12 team to come over and lead investments in North America and India. You know, would you consider doing that? And I said, huh, that sounds interesting. And I thought, well, I've raised 16 rounds in my many uh, in my tenure of many startups. And so I thought, certainly I know how to raise money. I should be able to figure out how to invest. Um, and it's great. It's fantastic being on the other side of the table. I love that. So so what does the team look like at M12? So we're quite small. It's 25 people in total um, in the organization. And on my team, I have a group of investors, some um, associates and partners um, and principals. And then we, and I have a, a lead uh, investor in India. Um, and then we have a venture team that's really focused on um, supporting all of our venture capital partners, regardless if we make an investment in one of their companies. And then we have a team that really does a lot of our research, our insights, and events. So we run a lot of events. Microsoft as a whole runs a lot of events. And so we try to make sure our portfolio companies can take advantage of the broader Microsoft. And then we have a portfolio development team that sits in Seattle that actually works with all of our product and engineering teams and makes sure that anyone we do invest in um, gets the full um, support of Microsoft, both from a go-to-market sales perspective and from an engineering perspective. So pretty small team, but really focused um, and really try to, we're, we're not a strategic fund. We're financially focused. So we really try to make sure that whatever we invest in, we can help them grow and become you know, more profitable. And when, when you joined, was the DNA of the team mostly Microsoft folks that kind of came up through the business or were they you know outside folks that were in venture, you know, with other organizations? 
Yeah, actually, we didn't have anybody from inside Microsoft. Oh, wow. Um, we hired all, you know, I would say 90% are just experienced venture people, uh, came from private private equity, uh, banking, uh, definitely, you know, I would say 80 to 90% had that background. Um, I, I think, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, I think I'm the only one uh, on the investment side that came from inside Microsoft. The We do our, our portfolio development team, which sits in Seattle, Redmond, um, they are all, uh, or most, I would say, are from Microsoft. And they, because we wanted people that really knew the inner workings of Microsoft so that if they are representing one of our portfolio companies, both inside Microsoft and through our sales organization, we wanted them to have you know that DNA. So a number of them, I would say 80% of our portfolio development team comes from Microsoft, but the rest is all uh, not from Microsoft. Wow. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, many, many years ago, I spent uh, uh, some years in M&A for uh, a corporation called Danaher and uh, was responsible for strategic acquisitions. Uh, it sounds like you guys are purely financially motivated, um, not uh, you know following the strategy of Microsoft per se and in the way that you operate and make investments uh, in startups. Uh, can you talk more about the thesis at M12? Yeah, uh, we try to stick to our knitting. I know that's an old cliche, but I, I do think we've done a decent job of, of that with only a few exceptions. And what I mean by that is we focus on B2B SaaS companies. Um, and it, that's a pretty broad bucket in itself because in that we do some deeper tech stuff. We've done it, you know, a few things in robotics. and um, But really we try to focus on B2B, right? So we're, we have an entire sales force that's focused on that. And so we feel like we can help our portfolio companies the best if we have expertise inside Microsoft that is... Um, able to help them. Um, while we, you know, I, I won't say that Microsoft is, doesn't do well in consumer because obviously we do great in gaming um, and, and a few other things. We don't have any experts on the team that know that space. So we've stayed away from uh, the consumer space, gaming space to date. Uh, never say never, but right now we're just focused on B2B. And as you mentioned, uh, we do lean in on, on Series A. We like to lead. Um, our preference. And so, but we've done B's and C's as well. When the fund got started, uh, we, we started out doing a little bit more in series B, series C um, buckets. And we've now in the past 18 months uh, really leaned in on trying to do series A. And we even prefer to lead. I mean, if, if we can, um, we, we try to lead. Yeah. What is sort of the ideal profile of a, a, com- a company that comes through your door? That's the right sort of stage sector fit. Um, you, you mentioned B2B SaaS, you know, is it, is it workflow tools? You know, what, what's a great fit for M12? Yeah, it's, it, it is pretty broad. So I would say workflow productivity, big, big focus for us. Cyber, the cyber area is a huge focus for us. Just cyber and security in general, um, has been a big focus for us. Um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, we've invested in some things that that do some really intelligent stuff with computer vision. Um, so it it seems like a a, a big uh, a big brush, but uh, it really anything B two B that you would see in in larger enterprises. Um, we have had some success in mid market and small business tech as well. Um, generally speaking, it's that tech that kind of um, is a is Broad meaning it could start in small business mid market and move up to enterprises is a good fit as well. Is there are there traction uh, benchmarks or you know is there a floor that you usually like to see before you engage or is it all case by case? Well, we it is all case by case, um, and so if you if you see some some of the investments we've made, we've even done a little bit in silicon. And I'll use that as an example. Usually, there's not going to be any revenue in in early stage silicon um, companies, but we try to look at you know how fast they're getting to testing and what you know wh- who's looking at it. What what are their beta and alpha um, projects? Because we can make some decisions on how quickly we think they'll get into market. Um, 
But generally speaking, you know, we're looking at, you know, two to four million dollars in revenue before they get to their series A. Um, It's a super generalization because we've done less and we've done more, right? You know, some companies have had more revenue before they've gotten into their series A and some have had less. Um, But generally speaking, um, some early stage uh, signs that they've got product market fit and, you know, um, have some revenue and, you know, a site to the following year that looks like it's going to, you know, increase by 100%. So if they're two to four million, we like to see that, you know, they've got line of sight to say eight million if they're four million in the, you know, follow on years. Got it. These are, it's really a broad brush though, because if we find technology and it's less revenue or their projections aren't as high, but we know in the third year they'll take off for whatever reason, we really try to listen and um, understand, like I said, the product market fit. And if we can help them, um, those are probably more important even than, you know, maybe the early stage revenue that we see and where their, where their uh, projections are. Are most of the investments done on the West Coast? Uh, no. Wow. We're kind of all over. Um, we, we do have a lot on the West Coast, but, you know, we've made a few here in Texas. Um, we have some in New York, a couple in, um, i trying to think, Chicago, I think, as well. Uh, definitely, we have some in Europe. We have a, a my peer that focuses on that. Um, lots in Tel Aviv. We have a research um, group in Tel Aviv and uh, a small team from M12 in Tel Aviv that focuses on that. So we've done a lot of cyber um, security out of the Tel Aviv office. We've done a couple of investments in Australia, and then we opened our M12 India focus last summer and really got it going um, at the beginning of this year and just made one of our first investments in the India market. So pretty broad. We're not doing a lot right now in Southeast Asia, so that's not a focus for us, but um, otherwise we're pretty open. Wow. And have you guys invested at all since the the pandemic broke? And are you are you changing the strategy or the areas of focus at all? Yeah, we've definitely invested since the pandemic broke. I mean, I think we've announced two or three since March, and there's a couple more that we'll um, be closing on here in the next thirty days. Um, we are not changing our focus or our thesis at all. Um, that's stayed true. It is a little more difficult when you can't meet the founders and the team and, um, you know, get a little more hands-on with the organization before you make an investment. Most of the investments we've made, we started in, you know, January, February, March, right? So we had a chance to meet those teams. Um, But there are definitely a few that we feel confident um, are great and will continue to move forward. Um, It's you know, I think everybody agrees it, it is nicer to be in person, but um, it it can be done. And I, I'm I'm pleasantly surprised that uh, the technology has, you know, whether it's Zoom or Teams or, you know, other video tech has been fantastic. I think Satya said in an interview recently that we did, um, you know, two years of digital transformation in two months. Right. Because <laughs> our teams, our team's product like took off like crazy. I mean, I think yeah. we, I, I was reading one of the stats the other day that we did the entire country of Saudi Arabia, their school system, right? So that all their students could get online. It was a million students in two weeks um, so that they could continue to go to school. Wow. So, I, you know, that part I think has been phenomenal. And so I think being able to take advantage of that technology has been an advantage for us. Um, I, I think it's been an advantage for all the, the venture companies out there. And and are you shifting kind of the the markets of interest or the areas of focus? Not not really. Um, you know, because I think because our thesis has always been B two B, that's been um, you know that market still seems to be moving uh, pretty quickly as far as new technology and new ideas. So um, we really aren't changing our thesis at all. I mean, I I've you know, dabbled in a little bit of the consumer stuff of late, um, more technology that could fall into a consumer category or into a B2B category. And it's interesting, um, you know, the areas of consumer that are taking off, right? Like gaming, right? It's just really um, our gaming team said that, you know, their their numbers are, you know, off the charts as far as users and um, 
and and you would think that right when you're stuck inside and you you know you get tired of Netflix, then you gotta turn on your <laughs> yeah. Xbox and get going, right? <laughs> right, right. So, Tamara, you, corporate venture capital has had the reputation of being slow, not leading deals, imposing restrictive terms. Um, you know, mostly thinking about the broader success of the parent company. Um, you know, what what how, how have you adjusted your approach and kind of what's your response? to kind of being put in the CVC bucket that, you know, often, you know, other investors raise an eyebrow. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding, right? If you talk to any of our uh, portfolio companies that we've invested in over the last four years, I think they would say it, it was a great, a great partner. We're glad we took that investment because they've helped us either from a technology perspective or from a go-to-market perspective and growth um, uh, so I, I think that first and foremost, if, if they look at the companies we've invested in, they'll see, um, that we're really focused on success and, and getting those companies, um, you know, on the right growth trajectory with our own customers and at, at, with Microsoft as a customer, we're very clear that we're not a strategic fund and we've actually invested in things where Microsoft has technology or even a competitive product. So we don't, we don't look at that and we are, you know, we use separation of church and state, right? We don't, if, if a company that we're investing in really doesn't want Microsoft to understand what they're doing or we don't share that there is, um, we're very clear about keeping, um, the, the, the technology separate and the information about our investments separate, unless of course we, um, both agree that it would be beneficial to um, to make that happen. So it's really up to the investment. Uh, it, it's up to the portfolio company to make that decision. So I think now that we've been around for four years, it's we've proven that we're not a strategic fund and that we really do look at the financials. I think most of our um, partners, other investment partners that we've um, co-invested in, you know, rounds will say that we're, we've, we're one of the better or one of the best, um, you know, corporate venture funds out there. And I think they quickly figure out that we're not strategic, right? Meaning we're not, we're not aligning to Microsoft's strategy. That doesn't mean we don't um, try to make sure when we're investing that Microsoft as a broader company can't help those portfolio companies, because that's one of our big value adds. So we're not going to go, you know, invest in some, you know, consumer, you know, I don't know, retail type company that we can't help at all. Right. Right. Where it's a product, you know, that has no benefit to uh, getting help from Microsoft, then it it wouldn't make sense for us. Got it. Got it. Um, And what's your approach to sourcing? Well, um, a lot of sourcing does come from our relationships with other venture funds that we have close partnerships with and we've had success with already. So that continues to be probably our, our lead um, top of funnel source. But I think and each of us as investors has our own personal relationships, you know, both in Silicon Valley and beyond. So we, we, um, go from there. We do um, get leads uh, internally from Microsoft. I talked to one of the heads of Microsoft Research today, and they're they're working with some technology, a company that just did a Series A that we unfortunately missed. So maybe we can look at the B, but I was um, I ended up talking to the CEO just before this call, and I was just blown away. And I was like, ha, how did we not know about this technology? Um, and this company, they've had great success just in the last year. So we do get um, some top of funnel from folks inside Microsoft and, and sometimes it's fantastic. So there's a number of ways. And I think it's a big advantage for us too, because we, we do take advantage of so much technology that's out there. So I think there's a number of ways, you know, relationships, current venture partners that we have already invested in or we know, and uh, also internally. And does it, is it structured as a, a dedicated fund or is it evergreen? It is, uh, it's, we, we like to call it every year we get a new vintage. So, you know, tech, technically we're investing off balance sheet, right? It, it comes from our, um, our CFO, but the, um, 
every year it, uh, we have a new vintage fund and that's what we focus on for that year and those investments. Um, we do have a small growth fund as well and we use that for the companies that are growing really fast and we can give them a little bit more um, investment and help them grow faster then we'll take it out of that. Got it. Got it. So Tamara, in the Valley, you're, you're sort of known as this user acquisition expert and guru. Uh, you know, you generated millions of app, app downloads across Path, Color, and Accompli. Um, you know, one of your main suggestions has been to, well, you, you've had a lot of, of good um, thought, advice, um, and, and content that you've contributed in this area. But um, what are your main suggestions to start is to dismantle the silos um, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I, I would say if you're to, there's different, um, if you look at growth, particularly on mobile, first you have to figure out who is your, who is your user, right? Who is that? Is it a consumer user? Is it a business user? Is it both? In a lot of cases it could be, and then determine what each user needs, right? And I, I'm a big fan of design and I, I, I maybe fell in love with design more than I was already in love with design when I was at PATH, but it is, it, I do believe that the right design on a mobile app makes or breaks that app. And you design the app different based on who your customer is, right? Who that end user is. And you're going to have lots of different types of end users, right? Whether it's, you know, an older, um, an older person that is using the app for a, you know in a particular way, a business person that's using the app in a particular way, and I I look at a company and I think about how much time we spent just looking at that user interface and making the smallest changes just to, based on the way people were using the app and how many more users we got or um, how many more users didn't churn right after we made the right little changes in the UI. So I, 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 I refer to silos more as if you think of that end user, who is that? And you're going to need a lot of them, right? And so you've got to be able to really figure out which user is in which bucket and really focus, make, make your product work for all of them because the broader you can um, make the product or the broader appeal that you can make in your product, the, the stickier it'll be and the less churn you'll have and the more users you'll keep and get. Got it. Yeah. And you've cited sort of the top three things that are required to make your app part of the zeitgeist. Um, what are the top three and why are each so critical? Well, I mean, I do think that changes, by the way, too, as as if I think back at, um, you know, my early days uh, at Boingo, um, it's very different, right, when people were just trying to get on Wi-Fi, right? And so, <laughs> right. you know, I, I mean, it's still, I still, you know, I'll walk into a place and I'll think, okay, I got to get on Wi-Fi. And you just, you know how difficult it is to find which one do you click on, what network is this, and how do I know is this, is this the network or is that, you know, it still is a problem. Yeah. And it was one of the things that they and the designers there and the engineers there really worked on was like, how can we bubble up the right network? How can we make sure they get on that network and they're able to connect, right? So, and, and that was a long time ago. And so now, you know, uh, in doing it, it's, you know, the product has improved drastically. They've been able to do more engineering, single click, tell you what the problem is, you know, tell you what the strongest network is. So um, if you look at it from, you know, 10 years ago to now, it's, uh, it's very, very different. But I, I do, I still believe, especially in mobile, when you're looking, you know, you've got you to gotta catch that person who downloads the app and uses the app and within the first 90 seconds, because you download the app, you, you know, you're thinking about it, you want to be able to use it, you want to be able to get on, right? Mm -hmm. If you start Oh my gosh, you got to get a code. You got to go back in. You got to do this. You got to sign up. You got to, you know, give your firstborn and, you know, here's a, a retina eye scan. Everybody just, um, you really feel like you've got to capture the user, make it easy, let them know the value of the app right away. Um, the other thing I think is figure out why people use the app and, and what's keeping them there. 
And I know when we were at PATH, it was seven friends. So if you downloaded the app and used it and you got seven friends to follow you and you were following them, right? And that's how it works. Um, we never lost you. You stayed forever, right? And you became, you know, a better and better user. So we tried early on to figure out how many, you know, do a lot of our, our, a lot of our data scientists looked at, you know, what was keeping the customers and what was um, keeping them using the product, right? So I, I do think that each app has its own, um, each product has its own thing that will make you keep using it, right? I know in Outlook, which accompli, you know, if people put their contacts in, that was enough, right? If they got their contacts into, into the app, so if we could just sync the contacts, we usually became the app of choice. Um, so there's going to be something in each one of those apps and you've got to try it. You need to do A-B testing. It's critical and you need to figure out what your users are doing and you need to be looking at that every day, all day, and when you're doing your alpha, when you're doing your beta, and when you go to GA and you got to keep looking at it because products change and people change, right? As they become more sophisticated, you're going to want to add to that as you take on new users. You're not going to want to lose the focus you had in the beginning to keep those initial users. Once you've identified what that action is or that hook that just locks them in, you know, what, what sorts of things have you done in the past to kind of encourage the onboarding or the integration of new customers, you know, without that handholding, right? Because we're not talking about, you know, a one-to-one customer success rep that's, that's working with a customer, you know, you're trying to do this at scale. Um, you know, how do you get folks kind of from that first download of the app to that, that action that kind of locks them in for the long term? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I think it's different with every product. So locking somebody in for the long term is, I think you have to continue to add value back to them. I know I'll use Path and Accompli because those are closest to my memory, um, you know, before I got to Microsoft. But um, if, with Path, you know, we added things uh, as we had a more sophisticated user. I mean, at one point we had, you know, 25 million DAU, um, mostly in Southeast Asia. But the interesting thing about that um, was they loved stickers, right? And so we tried to continue to get more and more stickers and, and cooler ones, whether it was, you know, can you remember if we had Hello Kitty, but um, some of the, you know, um, more popular football teams and uh, different and, and it, it to keep that audience and keep them coming back and make sure they were, you know, in the app and, and being able to gift those stickers to friends, etc. So it was interesting because you as the product evolved coming up with, you know, cooler features, and now that's super common, right? Everybody uses they're just in your in your normal messaging, but um, back then that was uh, relatively new. In a company, I think um, we just tried to add features that were super easy and really valuable. So one of the features we added was to go. It was focused and you know unfocused. I guess it was or other. I think we called it. And if you flip that switch. Pretty much anything that was spam or just sent out to a big, broad audience went into other. So you knew that everything was in your mailbox was already pretty important. Was it perfect? No. Was it 98% perfect? Yes. And so, yeah, a few things would fall into other. and People would like, oh, my mom sent me this and I didn't get it. Um, but it was very easy to check other. It's not like we threw it away or actually put it into spam. It was just the other folder, right? So you knew that in the other folder, it was going to be all those messages you got from, you know, the entire company, like all this or all that, or everybody, you know, come to this meeting. Um, so it was great. And people loved that feature. And when we got to Microsoft, they were a little uncertain. They were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't do this. You know, people, we shouldn't move mail over for people. And we took it out uh, in an A-B testing and people went crazy. They're like, what happened? Focus. I need focus. Um, so it proved to be a great, um, a great feature and, and a reason why people were using the product because it, it made them more productive. So I think, you know, consumer app path, we tried to make it more fun and give them more fun things to do. 
you know, every, and, and that now, like I said, now it's super common to have uh, filters for photos and, you know, but, you know, back then it was kind of path and Instagram in the early stages trying to figure that out. So I think um, adding features that people want and making the product more valuable. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Do you have any tips or suggestions for the uh, the users that go dormant? Right, you know, you've maybe maybe you never reach that major activation step that gets them locked in for the long term, or maybe it's users where you did, but for whatever reason, it's been a year or, or more, and um, they're no longer a monthly active. Any tips on kind of reengaging those those users? Yeah, I think if you look at it, you want to really watch that when it's happening, right? So instead of waiting a year, like you're going to see when people drop off at that 90 day or six month mark, and you're going to want to try to bring them back in at that point. Um, and it, it can just be letting them know about a new feature or sending an email to say, hey, I know you haven't you know, checked on this. Um, Here's some new things that you would be really beneficial. And I, you don't... I, I, I think trying to understand what that user was using it for and bring them back to that use case again is pretty important. Um, LinkedIn does a really good job um, of that. And, uh, and although I've, I've never worked for them, obviously, it's a Microsoft um, company. And it, they, they're able to continually remind you to um, add more add more people that you know, either from your university or from, you know, your workplace. And they do a really good job of trying to reconnect you with some of those folks. Path did a good job of that as well. So they would tell you if a friend of a friend joined, right? Like, hey, so-and-so just joined. And that might pull you back in. Um, We couldn't do as much of that at Accompli, right? Because it's a business app, even though people used it for consumer-based email you weren't going to tell people who was using the product, but you could let them know about a feature that might be, you know, really important to them, whether it's organizing their address book or the way they, you know, could organize contacts now, the other types of mail products they could sync to, you know, the way they could separate out their folders. So letting them know of new features that were, um, that were requested in the market and then that they came out, if you bring those back into somebody's, um, inbox, sometimes they'll come back to you. It's hard. Once a user churns, it's yeah. really hard. But if you can pull those back, even if you can pull back 20% of your churned users over time, it can be a big number. For sure. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about the churned users, um, you know, what, what is a good level of user retention after six weeks? So, you know, again, it, it does depend on the product. Um, so if it's consumer versus B2B, yep. but a, a rule of thumb is you, hopefully you're not losing more than 40%, um, that you're keeping 60% after six weeks. Um, it, it's, that's aggressive. Um, but I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's harder in consumer. You do end up, you know, if you, if, if I look at consumer success, if you can keep 50%, that's amazing. Um, 
But if your product is good, you can do better than that, right? And you can, um, you know, again, the easier it is for the person to use the product and the less you make them do to get going, the less people you'll lose in the first 90 seconds, right? Or in the first day. So that's number one. And then number two, when they start using the product, you got to keep feeding them stuff so that they don't churn, right? So you, yep. you just can't lose sight of that. Is, is there a way to tease out, let's say, you know, your retention is lower. Is, is there a way to tease out whether it's a product issue or a messaging issue, or maybe just, you know, you're, you're targeting the wrong type of customer? Um, I imagine that the, the data science would help a great deal with that if you had enough data. Um, but is there, there a way that you kind of um, diagnose, you know, what is the source of our lack of retention. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a number of different ways to do this. Um, although I never worked for this company, I actually was a, a big fan of a company we bought um, at Microsoft and I, I helped with the acquisition of a company called Mile IQ. And I look at the way, when the one of the reasons that I was so enamored with them and that Microsoft was excited to acquire them was their um, UI and their user inter- their user interface people, right, and their um, data scientists, they actually looked at a heat map of how you um, how you use the product, like where you touched the screen and how often um, you clicked right or left. And the, and the product was really cool. They they you put the product on your phone and you swipe left if it's business and right if it's personal when you're driving. And all it did was pick up the miles. So that if you were a real estate agent or a, a plumber or somebody, uh, you know, independent business person that had to track your mileage, um, super easy way to do it. And you could do it at the end of the day, at the end of the month, at the end of the week, it was always running. And so when you had to put your mileage in on your taxes, it, you know, it would give you everything that you did that was business and everything that was personal. And they worked so hard on that user interface and had such a sticky um, customer base. It was really impressive. So what they did is they let you use the product for 30 days for free. And at the end of the 30 days, they said, you drove 510 miles uh, for business. So this would be X dollars toward you either in a tax write-off or if you're turning it into your you know, corporate office or company that would reimburse you for those, those miles. And people were like, wow, this is amazing. I, I, are you kidding me? I'll certainly pay whatever it was, $65 a year to do this. This saves me you know, a ton of money. So they could tell you in the first 30 days how much you would save, what the product was going to cost, and was it going to be worth it for you to pay them to um, keep this app. And their conversion rate was insane. Um, and that just shows that they wrote a good UI. They kept track of what their customer was doing. They made it super easy to use. And um, it's just a, a, great, um, a great mobile app that could work for a consumer or a business person. And it, just ease of use was everything. It's surprising how much... I, I used to be a product manager. I've, I've launched a number of products. But it's, it's always been surprising to me how much ease of use... And elegance of design and interaction is just a superpower, even beyond like technical capability. And I mean, it depends on the application, of course, and the the customer sec- set. But um, ease of use is just such a superpower that's undervalued. Yes, it's it's literally I think the biggest mistake people make in a mobile app or even in a desktop app. You know, you look at it and you can't figure it out, and then you just are like, well, you know. Um, <laughs> And you don't go back to it. Most people, if they try it and they couldn't figure it out in a few minutes, if not a minute, um, they just don't go back, right? Because they're, they're busy doing other stuff. And if it's, you know, yeah, the engineering types might sit and try to make it work, but I won't. I just, I give up. So if, it's, if I'm the average consumer and I think I am, uh, it's got to it's gotta be easy. And it's got to look pretty too, right? I, I know that a lot of people, you know, you'll download an app or it'll be, a mobile-based um, web uh, and web app on your phone, right? And you can tell because somebody didn't actually design it so that it would fit a number of different phones. It doesn't, and then you're like clicking on the wrong buttons accidentally. And you're just <laughs> yeah. like, what? Who designed this? Yeah, 
Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like we we invest much earlier than you at Preseed, but we flip that whole concept, and we actually look for really poorly designed products that have amazing data and metrics around them. Um, you know, painful, just poor design, and it's we found some real gems by doing that um, and doing design pivots and UX improvements. Um, it, it's always amazing when you find a product that's hard to use and yet people are clamoring to use it and they're going through the pain still to use it because the benefit is so large. Um, but anyway, that's, yeah, that, that's, a, that's an interesting way to invest. I've never thought of that, but you're right. That is because the actual need for the tool is so great that people put themselves through the pain to use it. And can you imagine if you made it easy? <laughs> right. <laughs> And it's worked. I mean, we've we've only done that three times, but uh, in in each of those three cases, you know, once the design pivot occurs and the UX improves significantly, the numbers just um, get get very very uh, positive. Um, any thoughts? Great strategy. Appreciate it. Um, any thoughts, Tamara, on the biggest differences in approach when acquiring consumers versus enterprise customers? Um. Well, I, I mean, I. Do think from an enterprise customer base, if you're starting from, you know, um, Groundswell, where you're trying to be more like a Slack, where you tried to get small groups of users to use the product and then grow it from, you know, bottom up and a consumer, it's going to be pretty similar, right? Because you're getting just that user to understand the product and ease of use and getting, you know, a number of users connected to each other. That'll be really similar. On enterprise side, if you're selling from you know, mid-range or top-down, then you do have to make that product easy to implement so that they can get it into their enterprise quickly. And there's actually a, a very quick uh, return on investment um, that they can see, right? So if you're trying to get... Uh, I mean, I look at teams. Like, we... Um, you know, Teams versus Slack. Slack's a phenomenal product. We used it a ton at Accompli. Uh, we were a small startup and easy to put in and easy to get everybody to use. Um, and, and they took that and did very well across a number of enterprises um, at, you know, from the, you know, got a groundswell going, if you will. You know, Teams, we didn't do that, right? We had Microsoft. And so we made it part of M365. It got out there, it got into these big enterprises because of, are, you know, um, we, we're huge on security, right? We make sure everything is done exactly um, the way enterprises need it to be done. And Teams was a little bit slower to take off and then it was fire, right? I mean, it was on fire, right? And um, it, it, so it can work both ways, but you've got to make sure the product is easy to use. I, I you know, I, I actually, um, I still use Slack for a number of the boards that I'm on or they They've got Slack teams on that. So I use that every day. And I think I love teams and I used to love Slack. I used to think Slack was so much better. And now I'm like, I love teams. They've made it so easy to use. Um, I, I, it's hard for me to make a mistake on the product and uh, they didn't, they haven't added a lot of complexities that I don't need. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's different um, if, depending on if you're going from the bottom up or the top down in your sales approach. Yeah, I, I I'd love to hear a bit more about that. At at M12, do you guys look at both product led, you know, bottom bottom up growth as well as top down enterprise sales? We do, we do. Um, we just looked at a company the other day that I it, it is more of a seed investment or would be, and, and we do very few of those, if any. But we, but they um, they are doing a bottoms up approach, and it is working, and it's a great productivity product. It's amazing. And uh, somebody, one of the investors we were talking to the other day, and I can't, I can't remember what venture firm it was from, but he was like, you know, I, I think we're only going to invest in, in companies that can do this from the bottoms up now because who needs top-down selling? Now, I don't know <laughs> that I would go that far. <laughs> I've heard extreme. it. I've heard it from investors. Yeah, I, that seems extreme because I still think that some... Um, I mean, think about security, right? You're not going to sell security products from the bottom up, right? You're going to sell security products so that it's protecting the company and the enterprise and their assets, right? And so yeah. it, it, whether it's going to be on your device or on 
you know, in the network or, or something, that, that's going to be a top-down sale, right? You're going to have to go to the CISO and you're going to have to work with them. So I don't, you're not going to have, you know, hey, we're only going to look at products that go from the bottom up because I do think that companies uh, make decisions on tools um, and they, you know, make it across the board. Um, and and security is a big deal. I mean, we used to use a number of different. Um, Microsoft's really flexible in in letting different teams use different different products. Believe it or not, not Microsoft based products. Um, you know, at M twelve, we use Zoom a lot because it works for us as a venture firm. Um, but we, if the product you're using at Microsoft turns out to have big security holes, they will they will shut it down, right? And I had a number of well known productivity tools that I used and, uh, you know, over the years and sure enough, it would get, get into Microsoft security and they would go, there's like 19 holes in this. You can't use it anymore. So I think in big companies, fortune 1000, you're still going to have to have a top down approach just because they're, you know, companies are, are very security conscious and you've got to make sure, um, that you sell from that point. Yeah, I, re- I remember being on on Dropbox very early days back in when I worked for a corporate, and uh, <laughs> they caught that pretty quick and uh, was no longer allowed to use that. So I I can relate. Um, Tamara, yeah. how do you think founders today are are different than founders maybe twenty years ago? Yeah, you know, I, I think they're. Um I'm so impressed. I, we just uh, did a, a female founders competition um, right at the beginning of COVID. We had to turn the entire competition into a virtual one. Um, and I would, I will say that I think uh, today's founders are much more um, uh, sensitive to culture and making the culture of their company great from the beginning. Um, they do understand diversity and the need for it. Um, and they've seen the success of companies that are more diverse, you know, so they've got good examples to look at and they, they know that will make their company better. Um, they, they're very, uh, sensitive to, uh, retention and making their employees happy. Um, and you know, I'm not saying that 10 years ago, we didn't look at any of that. I just didn't, I don't think there was a spotlight on, um, that in, in, you know, keeping your employees happy and having a culturally diverse company, you know, did that make you a much better company? Well, I think we all knew it. Um, I, I think it was more unspoken and it shouldn't have been, but it was more unspoken. And, you know, now people are aware. They, they understand how to, how to build a great long-term company. And they're learning from great leaders in the market, right? So whether it's Satya um, or Tim Cook, or, you know, you, you, you have so much more visibility into these um, leaders who are iconic and really have done a great job um, and shared their knowledge broadly so that they can learn from it. And the founders, new founders, take, they're taking advantage of that. So Tamara, I'm going to put you on the spot. we got a hypothetical question we like to ask. It's called three data points. Um, oh, let's, no. say, <laughs> let's say your approach to invest in an enterprise SaaS business. Let's say the business has two million of ARR. Let's say it's growing twenty percent month over month, and the quick ratio is four. Um, the catch is you can only ask three questions for three specific data points. Uh, what three questions do you ask? I generally like to know total addressable market. Like, do they understand what their total addressable market is? it is still one question and and what that revenue would be in that total addressable market. So whether it's number of users and then the value for each user. So usually that's one question um, that I need to understand. So Mm -hmm. it's not a point product, right? Yeah. They might be growing 20% month over month, but it's, I need a big market so that I can see that they've got, you know, two to five years of growth ahead of them. Yep. Um, I, I generally, I'm, I like to know how they manage their cash. So I'll usually ask, you know, number of employees in burn. So I know what their burn is per um, headcount. Um, and a number of employees. I, I, I have been asking the diversity question lately, right? Like what's the makeup of your employee base? Um, it's a, it's a good question to ask because 
if it's a really small team, 10, 12 people, it's hard to, you know, hard to really, so, so I, I, if it's that small, I generally wouldn't ask that question. But if it's 25 or more, I would ask that question. Perfect. Love it. Tamara, what do you know you need to get better at? Well, I, I'd like to work less and, and be more productive. I, I think sometimes I work too many hours and I don't think I'm as productive as I could be. Um, and I think that's uh, maybe becoming worse during the pandemic. Um, so I, I continually try to be more productive in a less, uh, in, in less hours during the week. And I, you know, it'll probably be the thing I focus on for the rest of my life, just cause I, I, you know, you know, get more done in less time so you can have a little more free time for yourself. I hear that. And then finally, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you and follow along with M12? Yeah. So, um, you can follow us, you can follow M12 on Twitter. You can follow me at Tamara Steffens on Twitter. You can link into me. I'm always um, open to that. Please tell me a little bit about yourself. So I know who you are and, uh, why you want to link in. So put that in your note. Um, and yeah, we're always looking for top of funnel. So any great uh, early stage companies that fit the model and the thesis that we talked about, I'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this. We've, we've heard a lot of great things about you over the years and of course about the, the firm M12 and really appreciate you coming on and, and doing it. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. And that last question, that was tough. <laughs> That will wrap up today's episode. Thanks for joining us here on the show. And if you'd like to get involved further, you can join our investment group for free on AngelList. Head over to angel.co and search for New Stack Ventures. There you can back the syndicate to see our deal flow, see how we choose startups to invest in, and read our thesis on investment in each startup we choose. As always, show notes and links for the interview are at fullratchet.net. And until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks for joining us.